this is Kat. And this is Phoebe. We are Feminine Chaos, bringing you Feminine Chaos into your podcasting ears. Swashbuckling edition. Are we swashbuckling today? I thought this was the Rosemary's BB edition. <laughs> that was your... I, that Full credit to Kat, and you will you will learn why we say this. Um, yeah, swashbuckling. We're going to swashbuckle our way into a discussion of journalism and media and what came of it. Okay. Um, I have to briefly derail I already. Please. Already. We've not even started, but <laughs> I have a really crucial question. What is like the etymology of swashbuckling? What is a swashbuckle? Is It, it sounds like an accessory. Like, do I have to buckle something okay so you're gonna you're gonna think i'm i'm ridiculous but i picture always like a leprechaun (laughs) like with a little belt but i'm looking it up now i'm doing an image search of swashbuckle and it seems to be pirates are swashbucklers yes pirates are swashbucklers but they don't have really buckles on but i picture like a leprechaun doesn't a leprechaun have the most prominent buckle i i think on their hat and look now i'm looking oh no no the leprechaun has a giant buckle on his hat and then and on his shoes he has buckles are they gold um did, they seem to be okay i was gonna yeah. say you know he, he, he <laughs> took some of the pot of gold and used it to fashion buckles for himself which i think is fair you know he has that like he should be able to use the material very industrious of him yeah yeah um or maybe not so much i mean how did he come by the gold the, the, the mm. leprechaun has family wealth the leprechaun's a trustafarian <laughs> all right Anyway, yeah, well, it, it will be relevant though. This the the trustafarian question, uh, and and look at that. I've managed to bring it back. To- you were actually being extremely on top. Yeah, that was like five dimensional chess on my part. I totally planned that. No, I didn't. Okay. Um. So this article, <laughs> this this is this is going to be our media critical portion of the podcast because like the the biggest article that all of the journalist people were talking about came out in the Economist this past week. And Phoebe, you wrote. I think the best kind of response to it, pointing out what a lot of people were missing in the discussion about James Bennett and the article, and I'm really glad that you wrote this piece, but we should probably first just give the background on who and what James Bennett is. Yeah, I'm, I am well prepared to do this. So basically, in the height of post-George Floyd's killing early COVID era, the New York Times opinion section ran an op-ed by Tom Cotton, the senator, saying that um, like force should be used if to protect people or property against rioters, right? Wasn't it something along these lines? I'm probably like screwing up the terminology about every aspect of this. But the point is, a lot of people were very mad at the Times for you know, platforming this fascist, even though this this fascist was, you know, a sitting senator. So then James Bennett, who was the head of the opinion section at the Times, the editor of that, had he lost his job. I forget. I think he resigned. Um, it was one of these things like like Alison Roman style, except with fewer chickpeas. Anyway, he lost his job over this. This was one of these real sort of like in retrospect, but also for. I will speak for the two of us, I suppose, a bit what the fuck moment at the time of like a big newspaper needs to show what the opinions are that are out there, especially like it's valuable to know what a senator thinks, whether or not you agree with it. And the idea that staffers objected to this at the New York Times, objected to running that article seemed a little bit like the famous wokeness gone amok, right? And it seemed sort of like a, a high point, right? Like a sort of, and a less ambiguous moment, I would say, 
given all that was happening at that time. It seemed like a real things have gone too far, illiberalism, suppression of speech, right? You know, like one thing it's important to highlight that, you know, you've mentioned, but we should probably just really like emphasize it is that the response, the anger response to this op-ed and the kind of revolt against it came from within the New York Times itself. Yes, yes, yes. I don't know if anybody was on Twitter at the time, but like there was this mass push where everybody posted basically the equivalent of a form letter saying that the op-ed put black and LGBT, I think, uh, staffers at the New York Times in danger. Safe spaces. Words are violence. Yeah. Yes. It was really that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it turned out it was a very organized, very strategic effort. Um, they had specifically chosen this language in order to convey that like there was an HR issue here, you know, that it was a workplace safety issue to try to kind of make the maximum impact while still doing so in like a protected way. Because if you're agitating for safe workplace conditions, like you can't really be retaliated against. At least that was that was my understanding of what was happening and why and why it played out the way it did. So though I think that's an important can I yes and what you just said? Sure. There was also this context of the the inmates run the asylum, although that would not have been the polite way to put it, although the people talking about this and angry about it weren't necessarily, when speaking in private, using the most polite terminology, and of this idea that the underlings were rebelling at sort of elite media type places, the underlings had had it with their bosses and thought they could run the show better than their bosses and were sort of advocating for a kind of wokeness revolution, a, so, a social justice sort of tinged revolution that would put them in power and knock their bosses off those pedestals and get them fired. Yes. The specter of like, you know, middle-aged or older boomer, um, I guess, cause you know, cause we're the middle-aged ones now. <laughs> well, isn't, isn't that, isn't that just the case? Yeah, yeah. Gen X and boomer, um, like sort of senior staffers cowering in fear of 23 year old recent Ivy league graduates was a big part of this. That aspect I just want to like stick with for a moment, because I think that's where I've always been the most ambivalent about the sort of critiques of wokeness as pertains to that moment, because my critiques and some other critiques might seem similar, but like they're coming from very different places. Like I do not see the end goal as let's keep the people in charge always in charge. Let's make sure their jobs are, you know, like safe forever and that and let's keep the lower down people sort of powerless and precarious. And let's I don't see this like so this article or not article, whatever, this blog post, this little little bitty blog post I wrote about this was called by many people Marxist. And I, I see why, because it's like mar- Marxist analysis. It's not like for Marxist revolution. It's like material the material factors being more important maybe than the cultural ones, I think is kind of what people were. We're talking about your did wokeness kill swashbuckling. Yes. Okay, quickly before we talk about that, we should just explain that after this op-ed, after Bennett lost his job, you know, it was a big deal at the time. Now it's been three years. And Mm -hmm. in The Economist, James Bennett, under a byline, which is unusual for The Economist, published sort of the definitive, or we should say his definitive, his truth. I would not say that this was as definitive as, it it was very much received by basically everybody I follow on social media, except the people who I follow on social media who have very different politics. And I also follow people on social media with different politics. But I saw from many, many people who I think 
know what they're talking about. This, you must go read this now. It's amazing. Was pretty much, you know, like, this is it. Here it is. Here's the, you know, jacuzzi of our day, you know, whatever. Like, here's this amazing thing we have to all read. And everybody seemed to have uh, James Bennett's back. And I, I think is what what came of James Bennett? Because I know that um, Alison Roman has a sub stack. Does James Bennett have a little blog too, or does he do something else? No, he is he is the Economist's Lexington columnist. Okay, so he he's not doing what he had been doing. And and I'm not saying that this like I, I'm not one of those people who says oh somebody lost their job it doesn't count as cancel culture. But he's not somebody like he he has found something to do. And given his <laughs> illustrious career, as amply outlined in this article, it's not surprising he has found something to do. He's obviously very you know, skilled and accomplished and well done, James Bennett. I saw this and I felt, again, torn, both because of this thing of like the sort of revolt of the underling. Sorry, thing. I just... Sorry, yes. <laughs> yeah. Is there more background that I'm skipping? You just didn't let me finish saying what he wrote. <laughs> oh, what he wrote? Oh, yes. God. I'm just going to get mad at him before I... I'm not mad at him. That That's... Please finish summarizing. You seem a little mad at him. I'm a little... A little I'm not mad. I'm not mad. Please don't put it on the podcast that you got mad. Okay, just <laughs> take a take a breath while I say he wrote this thing in The Economist. We'll call it his truth. Okay, his his truth, his version of events. It's approximately like what would you say, like seventeen bajillion words long, and it's all it's all about exactly what happened behind the scenes as they chose to publish this op-ed and then as the backlash to the op-ed began and then as the backlash ended up uh, turning into this kind of like shit ball rolling downhill and he lost his job or, or rather was was told in chilly terms allegedly by Arthur Sulzberger Jr., the publisher of the New York Times that he had to resign and according to James Bennett, he initially said, no, you'll have to fire me and then he thought better of it and was like, okay, I resign. So um, anyway, this is supposedly like the behind the scenes look at what at the time was very exciting and scandalous, but also kind of shrouded in mystery because there was this question of like, whose decision was this? Like who, who held the power here? Why did he actually lose his job? Was this really an issue of this op-ed not being up to the Times standards? Or was there like a very particular set of political pressures in play that caused this really disproportionate, almost kind of histrionic reaction to what was actually just a pretty ordinary op-ed by a senator? Okay, so that's what we're talking about. Phoebe, go ahead and get mad. Okay, so it's partly a behind the scenes of that moment, but it's also sort of a, a me media criticism writ large, or like it's, he's talking about like what came of journalism, what journalism used to be, what it is today, and also about the sort of illiberalism that comes to threaten liberalism. And uh, so, so the generous reading is he? The, do you want to talk about the trigger warnings part? Yeah. So this was the part that. Um, that I posted online because, you know, it really jumped out at me, even despite the length of this thing, that this this was striking to me just in terms of what it conveyed about what the kind of environment was at the New York Times. And I think I put maybe a little bit more stock than you do in the idea, not that too much power coalesced in the hands of like young staffers, but that too much power coalesced surrounding a particular ideology that's really... Oh, I agree with that. Okay. okay so yeah, but go on. I was going to say that's... Yeah, that's really counter to, you know, how journalism should be in order to be what journalism is, is supposed to be. So this little bit, he mentions that at one point, 
as he was trying to do his job editing the op-ed page, he was told in earnest by an editor that he should affix trigger warnings to any editorial written from a conservative perspective, which like the, the Times, I would say, made a lot of mistakes. I would say even you know starting around 2017 up through the pandemic. They did not do this. They did not affix trigger warnings to every piece written by a conservative. So like, okay, you got to hand it to them. They did not do that. Yeah. So I, that part jumped out at me as well. And I saw a lot of people were sharing that excerpt because I think it was the most um, sort of shocking, like, like there's nothing ambiguous. Like obviously they shouldn't have done that. But the thing that's so interesting is that it wasn't obvious at the time to everybody. There were a lot of people who were like, oh yeah, you know, you got to, because it started with the whole idea of that, like opposing Trump as like hashtag resistance, right? Yeah, we were just in this very, very bizarre like spasm where expressing any curiosity about the perspective of half the country, you know, within these particular circles that you and I both kind of inhabit would result in allegations that you were like giving cover to racist, fascist, like would be destroyers of democracy and there basically was no such thing as like a a curious objective way to cover republicans in the united states at this time exactly so there was no the whole idea of explaining doesn't mean excusing yeah or depiction does not mean endorsement yeah exactly exactly so if there was report and and this is something that james bennett writes about like if the times would write about would report on you know people who hold either right wing or, you know, objectionable, whatever views that that this just simply reporting on it was then suddenly not considered acceptable in certain quarters and why and he was his article is partly about why that's not good. So there are parts of this article that I strongly agreed with, like the sort of bare facts of what came of the times at that moment in 2020. And also just sort of generally like the state of hyper woke a certain style in journalism that much I can be fully on board with but then there's something about this article that's just like fusing the fate of his personal James Bennett's career and the fate of liberalism as if these are somehow one and the same and if he's doing well liberalism is doing well and if he's doing poorly liberalism is doing poorly so a few things about this like the really big picture one is that now that free speech has become much more associated with like the right to say nasty things about Jews if you want to and you want to claim that you're doing it for Palestine, this is a different conversation. Like we are in a very different moment than we were in 2020. So some of this seems like, I don't want to say that it solved itself because it's bad in a new way, but a lot of this just feels like a real, a glimpse of a moment that is very much past. But then the other thing, so I don't know even where to begin with this because there there are a couple angles. So the reason I didn't immediately look at this and think, wow, James Bennett seems delightful is that I remembered reading um, a Medium post by somebody who had been a fellow higher up editor, but under not as high up at The Atlantic, who had worked with James Bennett, who had her own (laughs) jacuzzi, Jennifer Barnett. She had had not so great experiences working with him where... It's not like a me too. It's not like, oh, he's some sort of, he's not Harvey Weinstein. It's not that sort of thing. But that basically he would schedule important meetings to be at a time when he knew that a working mother was not going to be able to go to them and things of that nature. And just that he was kind of an asshole. So she doesn't in this Medium post mention Bennett or anybody by name. 
But in it, she does mention, sort of allude to somebody else who I had not so different experiences with. And thus, which certainly helps in terms of making me think this is all credible. (laughs) But like, it's not, it's not saying that these people were like monsters. It's just that maybe there would be two sides and that maybe you don't just like read something that James Bennett has said and think, well, he seems like liberalism and goodness personified. Let's just nod along. The point is that I came to this article sort of like ideologically biased to agree with all of it, but also like a little bit personally biased to be at least skeptical of it. Like, I didn't feel like there was something I was supposed to think because it could be too many different things. And then as I blogged about what I blogged about it, like this made me just sort of like try to think, well, what is in here? What am I actually looking at? And then it just hit me. This is all actually about like what happened to media before 2020, the lessened investment in reporting and journalism. So yes, like media companies decided that content is cheaper to produce than, you know, reporting or reviews or any sort of like old school journalism and this fundamentally changed media and that didn't create wokeness or whatever but it it set the stage for a type of coverage a type of content that's really outrage based and um, getting clicks on the basis of how angry you can make people and how emotional they can feel and all of this that became the business model And I think that in turn set the stage for the type of environment that went so badly in 2020. So that's kind of how I see it. So it's not that I think that things in 2020 were actually great. I think rather it's like you have to look at how they got to be that way. And I think the usual explanations for this are things like, well, you know, these young staffers went to a liberal arts college where they had a professor who told them about gender studies and post-colonial theory or whatever Or you have this kind of like they were radicalized online because they were in the wrong tumblers at the wrong time or whatever. But I think there's a a more sort of like like substantive whatever explanation, which is that media really, really changed. Companies stopped investing in reporting and started saying like, see how much you can churn out. And I think that that really made a difference because like forget about even the reporting angle because that's, I mean, that's huge, you know, but like reviews. The movie review from the person who hasn't seen the movie. This is still a thing. Like I saw a critic I know um, had just posted about this from something I think was like on MSNBC recently. Like this is this is what journalism became, and I think that this sort of facilitated um, this kind of outrage based, emotion based, feelings vibes based type of journalism. Because if you have to write a billion articles a week, you know they're all going to be crap. But they also You know, if you're trying to fight for them to get clicks, they're going to be a certain specific type of crap. So the reason I think all of this matters, and I know I've been talking for a while, but the reason I think all of this matters is because who are you sympathetic with? Not you, Kat, but just like in general, anybody who's looking at this topic, do you see this as that the younger generation kind of is just stupid? Or is it perhaps that like the older generation, perhaps not James Bennett personally, but that the older generation, the sort of higher ups made decisions that kind of set the stage for some of this. Yeah, so I want to yes and you. I was glad you wrote this piece because it really brought me back to my own kind of early start in journalism. I was an entertainment journalist at MTV News. And it's not like I was doing hard-hitting reporting. You know, it was like they just cast somebody new in the Twilight movie. Here's a 500-word post about that. But it did also mean that, like, in that world – there was a type of piece you could write 
for a while. And it was the, the type of thing I really enjoyed writing, which was like a deep dive into some aspect of a movie or a television show that was sort of like under the radar it was you know I, I loved to go and interview like the set decorator for something and about how they you know created like this or that one of my favorite pieces that is sort of the last piece of this type that I did for Vulture was interviewing a bunch of people who were involved in the show You about how they made Penn Badgley look, depending on what scene he was in, either like incredibly <laughs> handsome and charming or like the creepiest motherfucker on the planet because he has this kind of dual personality in the show and they really managed to like reflect that. And so I talked to all these people about like, you know, lighting choices and camera angles and like how they told him to smile with his teeth in some scenes and like without them in others. And it's just incredible to think about how I think I wrote that maybe in like 2018, 2019. And the market for that type of pitch had just kind of dried up. You know, it was like, you you could find a place for it, but that wasn't what people wanted. And it wasn't really what was getting read. What was getting read was outrage bait. And, you know, even like reported stuff like the, the YA toxic Twitter wars piece that I did, you know, that was centered on internet outrage drama. And that was one of the reasons it did so well. So it was interesting to consider like the kind of trajectory of even though I don't consider myself part of like the kind of outrage economy in journalism, it still has impacted my career that there was this shift to like looking for things that provoke a kind of a negative emotional response and less interest in deep dive repertorial stuff on like there was less interest in geeking out about entertainment, which I, th you know, it makes me sad. I think it's a loss. The thing that I think is maybe... I think maybe two things are true. One is that there were decisions made up top to change to this type of journalism, to de-emphasize reporting, which is much more expensive and you can produce much, much less of it, and to instead focus on opinion journalism, which is cheaper to produce. And personal essays, and right? And personal essays, right. So I think that's true. I think the other thing that is true is that this changed not only what kind of journalism was being produced, but it also attracted a different category of person into journalism. Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, Bennett talks a little bit about this, like from the perspective of, oh, you know, it's it's a job for joiners now. And like, I think that there's maybe some truth to that. It's, I mean, obviously, it's not like a very charitable read on things. But what it did do, it, it meant that somebody would graduate from college or even from J school and move into a job like at BuzzFeed or Slate or, or even the New York Times in which they had like no prerequisite of having to be curious about people. And that was the, that was the part of Bennett's analysis that I did think was really pretty spot on, that it became déclassé to be curious as a journalist about people who were unlike you in some way, who think differently than you, who live differently than you, and that that definitely impacted like what kind of writing was being produced, but also the climate in newsrooms, especially in the kind of uppermost echelons of the most elite journalistic spaces, aka the New York Times. So you did end up with then younger staffers who 
it's not that they were like just you know like oh they came out of college radicalized and then they remade these institutions they were like attracted they they were drawn in by these institutions they were recruited by them but they had learned like to wield power in a very particular way at a moment when people were kind of cowering in fear of that particular type of power. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I, I do want to talk, like, I, I know we have another or at least another topic, but this is, yeah. So I do want to talk for a moment just about the whole, um, what does it mean about who gets drawn into it? Because I did a newsletter, like I then did even another newsletter post on this because I'm like a little bit obsessed with this angle because I do think that that matters. Who is then a journalist in that, you know, landscape when it's not, about, you know, swashbuckling. It's not about being this fearless person, afraid, like unafraid of what people think of you, unafraid to go to a war zone, unafraid to make a phone call and talk to somebody, right? Today's small bean youths would probably find it too scary to even do that. You know, like why, what changed? And I think a bunch of things changed and they're really, really complicated and that there's not going to be time to get into all of them. But it became much more female because it became that journalism wasn't something you do when you swashbuckle and that's how you earn a living, but it's something, it became almost more of these, this sort of like pin money job to some degree. How, how applicable that is at the New York Times, probably not very, but in terms of media generally and sort of just what's out there, I think it has changed in terms of like the era of journalism, meaning it's the guys having drinks after work and that's when the decisions get made when, when the woman folk women folk, whatever, are dealing with bedtime for their children or whatever. Um, I think journalism became something that like, it became part of media, content creation, personal essays, all of this, it became very much this kind of feminized sphere, which often then does mean people just kind of do sneer at it. Like, oh, you know, it's these stupid women just writing about their nonsense. But like, if it pays $100 to write an article, if you're lucky, and if it if you're not lucky, $0, who's going to be doing this? And that in turn then leads to this other question about, well, it's just rich kids. And I think that's like really complicated because I think sometimes these two categories of people get conflated, like the young person who can afford some fancy apartment in New York or DC so that they can be a full-time unpaid intern probably does come from a rich family. Whereas a woman whose husband works, but isn't necessarily like rich, but has some sort of income and who doesn't have a ton of flexibility in terms of what she could do with her time and writes the occasional freelance article, is she a Trestafarian? And if so, how, like, I think a lot of these categories kind of get conflated when people talk about like what it, what it means materially that journalism pays so little. Um, and then this whole question of like, does journalism cover the wrong things because only rich kids go into it? I mean, I think maybe, I think some of, but I don't know that journalism was not covering sort of elite spheres before. So I'm not sure when this golden age kind of was. I think the problem is more the absence of local news than, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, something that just occurred to me when you were talking about how journalism has become kind of feminized or at least female coded as a profession is like, that's not necessarily true everywhere. And I'm just thinking about, how high stakes it can still be. Like there are parts of the world, um, and I'm thinking specifically of like Russia, where journalists who cover stories that somebody powerful doesn't want them to tell end up being assassinated. Whereas in the US, if you are covering a story that somebody doesn't want you to tell, 
the chances are more likely that you'll be like character assassinated. It's a much more kind of female coded type of aggression in response to the journalism as it's not just what's happening, like what the journalist is doing. It's also just like how the, the discourse shapes itself. Maybe the swashbuckler lives on, but not in cultural criticism in America or in Canada. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I, the only other thing I wanted to add is because you were talking about like your own career and how it does or doesn't relate to the sort of outrage turn in journalism. And I've thought about this a bit in terms of my own. And I think have, I have never set out to write clickbait. I have, however, I am part of the same media landscape where this is all happening and the ways that this has impacted what I've produced is like, there was a time when I wrote seven articles a week for the New Republic. And the speed of having to turn things, I write really fast, even so, even so, to have an opinion form that quickly was always a little bit, it made it that like probably like half of the articles were a bit shoddier than I would have wanted. And I think in another era, there would have just been more resources to focus. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Is that- yeah, yeah. I mean, the God, that brings me back. Like, I was just thinking the years that I spent as a shift reporter, it was like I, I worked the morning shift, so I would be on from, I guess, like 6.30 to 11.30 or something like that. Um, and in that time, the expectation was that I would produce three to four articles every single morning in that, like, five-hour span. It's crazy when you think about how high quality was the work I was producing. I mean, I think it was well-written, like I write fast, but deeply reported and thoughtful, it was not. (laughs) It's impossible. It's impossible to, to be that productive and to make a quota and also produce like hard hitting journalism. Well, exactly. So this is the thing that gets to me is when people criticize that type of writing and say like, look, so-and-so, they point to the byline and say, this person didn't even bother to, was so lazy, they didn't even do this or this. It's not that laziness doesn't exist in the world. Of course it does. And of course there are times when people phone things in that they shouldn't. But I think like the criticism that somebody, like I'm just going to harp on this example of the, the movie reviewer who only saw the trailer. It's probably not that they have zero curiosity about seeing the movie it's probably that their job does not fund them seeing the movie i'm gonna quibble with this a little bit that may be true but you still also have to be like a particularly a particular sort of shameless to be willing to write that piece i need to find um and then we need to put in the show notes the the latest example of somebody who had like written a long movie (laughs) they have not uh, seen the movie yeah, I mean, I, I do think you have to be shameless, but I think that the incentives shifted so far away from this and that like, yeah, yell at the journalist, but also like who's publishing it, like places should not publish that. Oh, no, I, I'm indicting everybody. Everybody is guilty. Like the the outlet that's willing to publish a review by somebody who hasn't seen the movie, like they should be slapped with, I don't know, like a three pound wet salmon in the face until they see reason. And also... The journalist who's willing to produce that content, who's willing to write like a long movie review without having actually seen the movie they're reviewing, they too should be slapped with a salmon. <laughs> Everybody gets slapped with a salmon. But how much How much did the salmon cost? Da, da, da. Ah. <laughs> <laughs>
I just slapped you in the in the slap me with a segue before we segue just do our little our little spiel we're feminine chaos we are a podcast if you are enjoying this conversation and would like to hear more like it please join us on Substack as a paid subscriber femchaospod.substack.com for five dollars a month you'll receive access to two sometimes three subscribers only premium episodes per month early access to our public episodes and what else commenting community AMAs Mm-hmm. Fun, fun times. So many good roller times. coasters. No, we don't have roller coasters. Not yet. We're we're building one with all of our many Substack dollars. Um, okay, so moving on, let's talk about the price of not tea in China, but chicken parts at uh, the local grocery store. So, Phoebe, were you aware of the uh, the soup discourse or the grocery store discourse online? Within the mm-hmm. past couple of weeks, it mm-hmm. was it was a doozy. Yes, not the soup Nazi, the soup truthers, or, or as you put it in your excellent Substack post about this, like the Poirots of soup. We're going to get the bo- to the bottom of it. Somebody who I'd never heard of posted about the price of lobster tails and steak being delivered to their home. And then Megan McArdle, the journalist, posted about how much she had spent on the ingredients for chicken soup. And then somehow a lot of people got very mad. Is that... I would Some of it? I would say like it started with okay so we have uh this guy Sean Trend Trendy Trendy his last mm-hmm. name is Trendy God that seems made up <laughs> whatever posted that he had ordered he door dashed Outback Steakhouse so like a blue and onion and some lobster tails and a steak salad and some other stuff with tax and tip all came to like one hundred and twenty five dollars that actually seemed pretty reasonable to me for the amount of food being delivered but whatever. This is obviously part of a kind of a a larger discourse that things are just kind of expensive right now. So Megan McArdle posted, you know, that everyone was dunking on this lobster tail tweet, but that she had gone to the grocery store to buy ingredients to make chicken soup from scratch. And that those ingredients, along with like a container of lettuce and a thing of French bread, had totaled $50. Now, like, to me, that seems completely normal because my first thought is ladies probably making a decent amount of soup you know right these are not units yes (laughs) soup is not a unit yeah so the response to this yes was a lot of outrage people accusing her of lying which was hilarious to me except that it was like we're talking about established media figures including i'm sorry to name drop him here but jonathan chait who writes for new york magazine like just flat out accused her of lying about the cost of her grocery bill. It's like, you're going to get on the internet, on the public internet, under your real name and be this much of a dick to somebody about soup? Like, what is... So I am on your side on this, but I'm going to have to give a little bit of a backstory as to why. So there are a bunch of really weird things happening here that we will talk about. But um, David Brooks, another journalist, right? Yes. New York Times opinion columnist, uh, conservative, trigger warning. Sorry. I had to do it. I'm sorry. Um, he posted something. He couldn't believe how much he had spent on some like hamburger and french fries or something at, I forgot what, Newark Airport, LaGuardia Airport. At the, it was definitely at the airport. And in the frame with the meal was the rather large stiff drink that he had also ordered. It did not take Poirot to figure out that the cost of this... Obviously, the bill was this drink, and he had a somewhat overpriced, like $20 whatever hamburger and a really fancy drink. So 
that I think be, that may have been the sort of subtext for some of what people when when they said lying. Now I don't know about Jonathan Chait specifically. I've not asked him. You know, I don't know him personally, but I do think that it is possible for somebody to be a reputable media figure and misrepresent what they have spent on food items. However, I also am familiar with the making of chicken and soup, and that does not seem at all implausible to me. What is the Biden angle? So can I just tell you why I'm wondering about this? Stuff's fucking expensive in Canada. Like groceries here are so expensive. Like people come from the States and are shocked. So why? So I have trouble assuming that like Biden is personally determining grocery prices generally. There may just be something globally happening, but what's going on? Why is why did Biden what did Biden do? This I think is why this is such a heated discourse and why it results in so much of people like talking past each other and and there's this real determination to interpret people talking in a, a kind of a casual, like quotidian way about the price of things, which is like very, very normal with a political statement. So like you have people for people who just basically cannot decouple these things. Economic discussions are inherently political to them. And I think that these people are overrepresented online. Certainly they were overrepresented in the uh, in the soup discourse. And my theory about this and like I don't really understand economics super well, you know, but like my understanding of the culture, which is a little bit more informed is that basically it's an election year or it's about to be and incumbent presidents don't do well when they're trying to get reelected in a bad economy and so people who want to see Biden reelected who sense that economic pessimism is going to be bad for his prospects on that front have this kind of knee-jerk emotional response when they see somebody talking in public about prices being high they're like don't say that don't talk about like you're you're putting ammunition in the cannon of biden's opponents what are you doing this is a this is a political discussion you've stumbled into the the result of this is this just kind of like deranged acrobatics of people trying to convince like ordinary grocery store shoppers that they're imagining that everything has gotten quite a bit more expensive lately when factually things just are really kind of extremely expensive right now. So what I found so fascinating about this kind of like taking a step back is that the progressive take on the price of groceries prior to this sort of wave of inflation had been we in the West, in the pampered West, should be really paying the true price of food, coffee, whatever, and we are paying, and clothing, we are paying too little, we are expecting too much for too little money, and we need to be less greedy, and we need to pay the true price, which is like, if you don't want to pay $10 for your coffee, you are abusing the coffee laborers and so forth, and the baristas. So that, I think, had been the discourse. I still can think of, off the top of my head, a bunch of journalists and so forth still on that kind of beat and still making such arguments. But the idea that you need to really invest in how much you spend in your clothing, that you really have to like pay the fair price, you know, that t-shirt, if it didn't cost $100, you were obviously tells you that you're abusing the laborers, whatever, you know, that type of discourse, like it just doesn't work when people just don't have enough money to pay for stuff. Like you can't think like that. (laughs) I don't think you get much of an audience for like, I wish I were paying more for my chicken. So I recently spent $18 on chicken thighs that were terrible. 
and basically we had to throw out. Oh Isn't no! That upsetting. What was what was wrong with them? They just they weren't like off. They just didn't taste right. I don't know how to explain it. Like they were just sort of fatty in a weird way, and like that chicken missed leg day. It's a damn shame. <laughs> <laughs> I can go from here with this. But don't but do you see what I mean about the like we pay do you remember we pay too little for stuff discourse? Does this like ring a bell or did only I I, I this? may I may have missed this. But so what's the, the the reason I bring this up now though is that what's so funny here is that the suggestion from the left is like you should buy crap. Yes. The, I mean that's the thing is like if you just kind of go on the public internet and you casually observe that you're buying the same food but it's all a lot more expensive than it used to be, which I think is like pretty much everyone's experience at this point. You'll get a lot of people being like, well, you're shopping wrong. Like you should be buying store brand. You should be using coupons. You should be going to like, you should be shopping at Walmart or whatever. Like you have to change the way you shop. Don't complain. Don't complain. And the thing that that fascinates me about it is how kind of tone deaf it is as though you're going to talk people into not being upset that everything is much more expensive and the thing that really fascinates me is people will make these very intellectual i mean they may in fact be sound from a data standpoint but but these arguments that the economy is actually great and we should feel great about it that are so completely detached from how normal people experience the economy which is they experience it when they go into the grocery store and everything's more expensive than it used to be. And somebody who's standing in the meat section and looking at the the standing rib roast that they wanted to buy for Christmas dinner that like was previously, you know, it was expensive, but it was like something that they could afford to splurge on once a year. And now it's like one and a half times as expensive as it used to be. And it's no longer something they feel like they can buy. Like that's a really emotional moment it feels bad and somebody popping up saying well actually the rate of inflation has slowed so that rib roast is going to be just as expensive as it is now several months from now like there's absolutely no sense of like oh thank god <laughs> you know nobody's gonna be like well I'm so happy to hear that <laughs> well what I can't and so as a I'm not an economist believe it or not <laughs> but I don't I just it. wonder I just wonder why it's like this in Canada and the states and probably I need to read more of the the sort of swashbuckling news articles to learn this and less of the reading of the real estate section to find people whose mansions are called a tiny house or whatever <laughs> but like it, this is really bad in Canada, like probably worse than in the States. And Biden is not president here. So I'm just wondering, like, is it possible that there are bigger forces and that like individual U.S. presidents do not actually like fully determine the economy? Is that a possibility? It, it seems possible to me, uh, as little as I know about the economy. I do have my suspicions every time I see one of those stickers on a, on a gas pump, which you probably you don't have these in Canada. I know what a gas pump is i have that's, used one that's even, good but... because i could not explain one to you but um in the states especially like when gas prices were really really high like they're kind of high now but like there was a moment where they were just like skyrocketing if you went to a gas station next to the place where they display the price which at this time was like five dollars a gallon there'd be a little sticker of joe biden pointing his finger and it says i did that <laughs> Which 
seems, you know, maybe a little bit of an oversimplification to me. Uh, it did at the time. It always mm-hmm. has. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the the thing about high prices is that it's something that is happening kind of globally. And that's just because basically every country screwed up its economy um, in the midst of the pandemic, whether that was avoidable or not, who who can say, but everybody is now mm-hmm. suffering the consequences. And that's where we are. Yeah. I mean, to me, this does not seem like the case for Trump. If it's, you know, certainly if my groceries are, are too high, I don't think, I don't think it's very much to do with who's president of the U.S. Um, although it does actually have to do with, um, I always mispronounce his name, Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg, thank you. He was somehow involved in the consultancy, was it McKinsey, that did something to do with the price of, that fixed the price of bread in Canada for some supermarket chain. So this actually might relate to U.S. politics in a roundabout way, the fact that groceries are so expensive in Canada. But um, in any case, yeah, I mean, I think this does matter. And I, I guess it's weird to think that people wouldn't care about this. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, you know, it's entirely logical to say this isn't the fault of the current president. But nevertheless, when the economy is doing things that make people unhappy, and the economy is presently doing things that make people unhappy, they tend to vote those feelings. And it's hard for me to kind of grok the the impulse to sneer at them for doing that because it's just how it is. The idea that like we shouldn't acknowledge that as oh, a reality. This is reminding me of something that is not specifically about groceries, but about the sneering. Okay. okay? Are you ready for something a little bit galaxy brain connection here? Yeah, do it. So somebody posted that their nephew didn't get into some Ivy League school despite having all these qualifications and then sort of insinuated that this was about race. And then somebody else quote tweeted it as follows. Look, I realize I have a PhD from Princeton and I teach at Yale. So YMMV, your mileage may vary. But this attitude is the end result of an elite culture which sees an Ivy League degree as a personal branding exercise instead of, you know, an actual education. So, okay, (laughs) the reason I bring this up is because of the sneering at somebody's complaint. Like, Maybe it is silly to be, you know, complaining that your nephew didn't get into an Ivy League school that he had wanted to because like very few people get into each of these schools and, you know, but if you're going to do that with a giant big billboard about your own Ivy League affiliations, does that really... Is, is is that like what Greta Gerwig was talking about with the Barbie movie where she said she was doing the thing and subverting the thing? Yes. <laughs> I think about that line every day in about like 50 different contexts, the doing the thing and subverting the thing all the time. Yes. But what's really funny and somebody replied to me saying, I wonder where this person got their undergrad degree or something, because obviously they're not mentioning it because like it's not highfalutin enough. And indeed, like I think they mentioned in the thread and it it is indeed a state school that is not like one of the famous state schools. So, but yeah, I mean, I think that, but the reason I bring this up apart from that, I just found it sort of independently kind of funny was just this idea of like sneering at what people care about, not being generally like the best strategy for convincing them of things, especially when it's something that everybody cares about to some degree. And 
you know, maybe people shouldn't care so much about Ivy League colleges, but they should care what their groceries cost because you need to have enough money to live and eat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the thing, too, is like people will point out that salary or like wages on average have gone up, which is true. But I was looking. So the, who, do, who wrote this? It was but I think it might have been under her like on her locked account. So I, mm-hmm. I'll have to bleep out her name. But she was like talking about how she was doing her end of year like financial review and noticed that she was actually making like a very decent living, but everything is so expensive that she doesn't feel fancy. That I think it speaks so fundamentally to the expectations people have and why the vibes matter. If you are making more money you expect to feel like you have more. You expect to feel richer. You don't expect to feel like you're running to stand still. And I think especially for people who have been like maybe living a little bit hand to mouth or paycheck to paycheck, if they get a raise, then their first response is going to be something like, finally, my hard work has paid off. I'm finally getting ahead. I'm finally going to be able to like save to buy a house or put something aside for my kid's college education, or maybe I'll pay off my credit card debt, or maybe I'll just like, I'll have a little extra. I'll have more. And when prices are increasing as fast as your paycheck is, you just feel like, you know, it's like, I barely had my head above water. Like I should be at least have head and shoulders above the water, but the water rose too. So I'm still just like Mm -hmm. treading. It feels bad. Like it feels really, really bad to feel like you are working and working and working and working and never getting ahead because like the economy is doing things that kind of stack the deck against you. And I don't think that there is any version of events in which you can convince people to not feel that way. Yeah. I mean, it's the only thing I can understand about it is that people are so that it's like the Trump panic thing. And I don't want Trump to be elected. I think that I want to say that the more sensible approach would be to point out like all the legal trouble he's been in. And like, do we really want to be that country or what what I mean? And also just like, obviously, Biden, you get something like pretty even keeled in terms of leadership and maybe that's better but that would be more where I would point than the I mean as it goes compared to Trump. I'm just laughing because like you know even keeled I'm thinking of like a small ancient rowboat that is still afloat but, yeah. <laughs> but like I the, don't even know if there is a Biden I think there might just be some sort of like like machine <laughs> just I don't know yeah it, but it, it's fine it's fine and I live in Canada it's not my problem but yeah Oh, God. I mean, that's that's the other thing is like, you know, the the economy aside, there are things like if you just if you just look at a video of Joe Biden right now, it's 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 not super confidence inspiring. Like he doesn't. But aren't there supposed to be other people who could be president who are neither Biden nor Trump? Or does that has that gone off the table? All, all the people consider the other Republicans Trump light and they want the real thing. Right. Isn't that the problem? That's that's a very complicated discussion <laughs> that I don't think we have time for. I don't know. Like, I don't want to call out this this person who commented on my Substack post, but they said something like, you know, doesn't it worry you that like we may get a second or even third or fourth Trump term, Trump administration? And it's like, okay, like let's let's be reasonable. Yeah, the threat of a second Trump term for you know as president is a real thing. He's limited to two. Okay. Like he gets two, everyone gets two. He's not gonna have a third or a fourth. Like I think if there's one thing that we learned from the original round of Donald Trump as president, it's that 
even when he doesn't want to leave the White House, he still gets ousted from the White House when he loses, like, because that's how things work. So I don't know. There's something a little bit overly catastrophizing, I think, about a lot of the dialogue surrounding a second Trump term, which I, you know, I agree would be bad. But I don't think we have to overemphasize to the point of like losing touch with reality, how bad it would be or in what ways. If you don't lose touch with reality, then the journalists at the New York Times do not feel safe. <laughs> um, do we want to talk about trad wives or is it, is it? I mean, I really want to. I really want to. So Kat wrote a really, really wonderful article for Reason called The Paradoxical Freedom of Trad Wife TikTok about the trad wives. <laughs> uh, Kat, who are the trad wives and what, what was your thesis about them? Okay, so the trad wives are a group of content creators they don't all call themselves trad wives. So it's like you can you can identify like a hipster. Yes, you can identify as a trad wife or you can have the trad wife label thrust upon you, usually by somebody who doesn't like you very much. So yes, in that way it's very much like like hipster. They are a group of female content creators who are living according to traditional gender norms in heterosexual marriages, usually, although there is this entity called the stay-at-home girlfriend who is something sort of like a trad wife, but she's not a wife yet. Can I ask you one question about this, though? Are there any trad wife influencers who are just fully single? I don't think so. Like, okay. I think, I think you have cool. aspiring aspiring trad wives, you know, women who are like, I wish I, I wish I were. I wish I, I were I knew a trad somebody wife. when I was maybe in college who called herself an aspiring trophy wife, but I think it was a bit tongue in cheek. But anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah. I like I like this person. Um, I, mm -hmm. I like this. Yeah, she's, she's funny. She's funny. So yeah, I consumed you know about like a bajillion hours of trad wife content to try to understand what's going on with these women and what what's happening in their world. I was. Not, I wouldn't say skeptical at the outset. I was just kind of curious. I didn't really know what I was going to find. Um, I did know because of the maybe media sphere that I inhabit um, that the trad wives have a very, very devoted group of haters in kind of legacy media spaces where you tend to get like ambitious women, you know, who are working as journalists who really hate what they're doing um, because like the whole thing about being a trad wife is you eschew having a career outside the home. Sometimes you even eschew getting a college education in order to just inhabit this domestic realm and like kind of be the queen and excel at that. So um, there are all these commentators, including Anne Helen Peterson, for whom dumping on trad wives is kind of like, uh, I don't know, her favorite leisure activity or like a second job or something. So I, I thought that I might find a lot to criticize. And what I actually ended up finding is that I think that the trad wives are like a little bit sneakily empowered. Like I think they're, I think they're doing something more kind of individualistic and more self-driven than they get credit for. And not even in like a choice feminism way. Um, it's like they... They have created this kind of little, or there are sort of like a, a loose assortment of miniature empires because each one is sort of like the queen in her castle, but in which they are in charge. Because if you watch this content, like it's being made by women, it's about women, and it's for women. And 
insofar as you ever see a husband in these videos, even though supposedly they're living these lives in which they are quote unquote subservient to a man, like all you ever see is the husband like standing where she says to stand and saying what she says to say. There's this actually there's this one video that I was obsessed with where it's like a woman, a trad wife getting ready for her day of trad wifing. And uh, a big thing about these women is that they, they dress very like traditional you'll see there's a lot of prairie dresses and so this woman is like putting on her prairie dress and her husband appears in this video he's helping her to get dressed he's like putting her boots on for her man's on his knees putting her shoes on and I was like who is actually in charge in this scenario (laughs) who is subservient to whom right now so I, I think it's very interesting like they provide in some senses a very almost feminist perspective on domestic life right they are they're producing all this content inside their houses inside their kitchens that shows the value and importance of women's work in a domestic realm and yet because of the aesthetic and because of the packaging feminists absolutely hate it yes i think that makes sense I took like notes on your article because I had all these like thoughts. (laughs) And so I read and I think reviewed Sarah Peterson's book about the momfluencers. And she's obsessed with this ballet lady. Ballerina Farm. Yeah. Hannah Nealeman. I knew all about it from that because that in turn, I, I had to look at that Instagram. I did not feel as like sucked into it as I guess a lot of people do. It's like whatever it is that is aspirational slash aggravating to people. I don't think I found it either. And I was just like, all right, <laughs> that's a person doing something. And now, now I'll go look at something else. But, um, but so I was familiar with her. And I guess I think this was her argument, but it's also just kind of like a longer standing thing about that these, a lot of these women are content creators. And you write about this too, like that this, these are people who had been doing often sort of other things in the content creation sphere and whether or not they're all paid a lot for it, it's like Martha Stewart selling domesticity, right? Mm -hmm. Like being, you know, single and a businesswoman, but also this figure of domesticity, but she's making a lot of money for it. Or um, for those who need a sitcom reference, Sue Ann Nivens on the Mary Tyler Moore show, The Happy Homemaker. Wait, does Martha Stewart not have a husband? I don't know. I I don't think so. I had no idea. Okay. I I have to Google this. Let me see. She has a child. She had a husband who died in uh, 1990. But yeah, I mean, she's like this, the domestic goddess who may or may not have, like by definition, if you're, if you're an entrepreneur, you're probably not a stay at home mother or whatever, right? Like, cause you're doing something, even if you're physically doing it at your house. Um, and yeah, Sue Ann Nivens on the Mary Tyler Moore show, the character who plays the happy homemaker is like, in her personal life, sleeping with lots of men and not particularly domestic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think this is like an old, an old type, like the sort of person who sells domesticity, the woman specifically who sells domesticity and may or may not be living it. Now, I'm sorry. I just have to say, this is the plot of my favorite, my favorite Christmas movie ever, Christmas in Connecticut, starring Barbara Stanwyck. There's even a journalism tie-in. She writes like the happy homemaker column at this magazine and describing her life on her farm. But she actually lives in New York City and like spends her paycheck on on mink coats. Okay, sorry. Anyway. Okay, so that, no, but this is this. So yeah, I, I'm sure like even in like ancient Egypt, there was this yes. um, type. It's such a trope. It is. It's a trope. It's a trope. And it it's 
Great. And I think, um, I think sometimes in the sort of Anne Helen Peterson realm of things, there's a little bit insufficient ability to see nuances of tropes. And it's all like somebody's either trad and bad, or they're like overtly liberal and good. And it's like, this is just, there is something going on here that's more complicated. These are not like the actually trad wives are not posting. (laughs) Like I think that, or if they're posting, it's like, family photos for their family you know they're not creating this curated sort of content like there was some video that was making the rounds recently that was some woman showing how her family's morning goes and it's that like she wakes up at five in the morning or four in the morning I think it was even like four in the morning to work out and then does this getting the children ready and then does this sort of work out and it's like this is for this is a television program this woman is making this isn't I mean maybe like it's also how she's spending her time but at a certain point, like, would you say that somebody who's acting in a sitcom, that that's really their life because that is time that they spend their limited time on this planet, they're at that sitcom table? No, I mean, like, it's a performance, but it's it's autofiction, no? Like, isn't this just kind of autofiction? That's interesting, like, the sort of self-pathologizing aspect of it. I had not thought about that, but yeah, there's a there's a piece of that to it you mentioned like the inability to kind of see the nuances of things like I mean I think that yeah you know there is this idea and and I think it has a lot to do with the determination of the trad wife critics to politicize what they're doing there's this sense that like what they're doing is right-wing coded hence it's dangerous um I think it was Peterson who called them like the handmaidens of the Christian nationalist agenda that's the Sarah Peterson book basically is about this is about the sort of she's she writes about momfluencers of whom trad wife type ones are a subtype so she also talks about like the that there there are some momfluencers especially if they happen to be BIPOC or otherwise marginalized who are the good ones but then there are the bad ones who are the you know white christian whatever and this ballerina one i guess is She's a, she's Mormon. You know, I think but I think the thing is, like, if you look at the content, the, the women who are doing this, who are like white and Christian and the women who are doing it because they're black and Christian or there's really no difference in the tone of the content. It's like it's, it's being received negatively based entirely on the identity of the person doing it, like the superficial identity markers of the person doing it. There's nothing inherently political about it, except insofar as like that valence is being assigned to them by people who are are inclined to be uncharitable. I mean, the the ballerina farm resentment, I think it's a bit like, I mean, I can understand at the level of like when I found it annoying when there's that house in Cape Cod that's calling itself a little house and it's huge and the people are so proud that they only use the natural materials. Like, I think there's a certain aspect of a performance of doing things the right way when obviously like what you're looking at is somebody who has the resources to do things a certain way. But I guess I just can't see sustaining that much angst about it. But they, I, so I have other notes though that I want to ask about. So okay. one is that, is it possible that some of this, you say that the husbands are not really that relevant, but isn't on some level at an, in an era when it's really, really hard to return to the cost of living topic, it was really hard to have one income only especially if there are kids, but even if there aren't, is some of this just showing off that your husband makes a ton? Even if the husband himself is almost just implied, where does that enter into it? It really, I cannot emphasize how much men are just like absent. But the reason the women have the time to do this is because somebody's paying for it. Somebody's working, right? Or are the men also like homesteaders? 
Well, I mean, in the case of Ballerina Farm, they run a farm, but he is the heir to a billion dollar fortune. Um, but like other ones, you know, their husbands work construction. Like, I mean, a lot of a lot of these posters are just like middle class people. Like, I mean, they're they're not they don't have super wealthy husbands. Okay. No. So Ballerina Farm's exceptional in that regard. She is, and like, I mean, I think the thing is where that money comes in is that they own a lot of land they own this farm they can afford to like make a lot of mistakes on their farm because it doesn't have to be self-sustaining so there's like this larping as a homesteader thing happening where yeah there's a sense that there's probably stuff going on behind the scenes like she probably has people helping to care for these like eight children that she has she has a, a very expensive stove in her rustic farmhouse where she makes her bread but this it's, was also in Sarah Peterson's book, all of these details. Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I think there's something telling, actually, about the fact that, like, when people want to diss these women for being, like, stealthy, st- stealthy wealthy, <laughs> what a horrible, horrible <laughs> pair of words that is, they, they always seize on the same things it's like look at this stove look at this land look at this but it, but it is objectively true that if you don't have to earn a living like there there's a reason most people work which is that they have to earn a living and if you're also like the question is what well, are are they staying home when the children are very little or just indefinitely and that's here's what i'll just say like it's a big world right you know there's a lot of different kinds of people living in it who have a lot of different kinds of lifestyles i think there are a decent number of people out there who, when the kids are young, at least, you know, the woman does just not work. And these are people making like a middle class income and they just live close to the bone and they save obviously on childcare. It is possible if you have somebody who's being, who's working as like a full-time housewife, I think it is possible to live on a smaller budget because you're not paying for the things that people with double incomes where the woman works outside the home do have to pay for. There's the stuff that you have to outsource that then the woman is doing for free, which I think is, you know, kind of goes back to what I'm talking about when I say that, like, these accounts illustrate the value in some senses of domestic labor that is otherwise invisible and unappreciated in a society where we expect or where we where the idea is that like the only valuable work is paid work yeah i i think uh this does bring me to my third note (laughs) which is that because you write about like the american aspects of this a bit and i was thinking you know being that i live in canada and all of this about how you don't really get because canada has maternity leave you don't get this thing where you have to decide when you have like a six-week-old baby, are you going to go back to the office or are you going to be a stay-at-home mom for a bit or forever, right? There isn't the same all-or-nothing question that gets posed. So, but the point is, like, um, there are systems that can exist that are not communism (laughs) that, you know, allow for kind of a third way. And I think some of what happens maybe with the trad wives is like, and and not just specifically them and what they're doing and their decisions. And I don't even, I mean more just like the emotions that seems to bring up in people. And like the, you talk about in your article, like the, the sort of the way a certain type of woman 
takes in this content as a hate read, right? I think some of it has to do with just like the idea that there are these two paths possible. And I guess it's it's just like, I, I look at this and I think, no, no, there are not only two paths possible. There are two paths possible in a certain system. And I wish, um, and I I don't blame anybody. It's not like, I'm not obviously saying like, why doesn't everybody move to Canada? And it's not as if Canada doesn't have its own problems in other regards. But the point is, it is also possible to like, at least try to work towards a system where there would not be only those two options. Yes. I mean, even though obviously they are influencers to a certain extent, like, you know, they're, they're in some ways a living advertisement for what they're doing for the way that they're living. They also are just doing it. I mean, you can you can question like what are you not seeing? Like they're not showing the Costco run that preceded the you know baking of the bread in the in the kitchen. But that's true of you know any person who's posting a certain type of content who's trying to cultivate like a certain type of aesthetic. I think that there is something to the feelings of sort of like resentment that this content inspires just by existing. That that is interesting to me. Um, I think that it reflects a sort of a tumultuous internal state for a lot of women who, at this point, are sort of trying to decide like what version of a life do I want. And it's like you know, you see the most extreme end, like the the trying to have it all, going back to work six weeks after you've given birth, um, or or like freezing your eggs company sponsored so that you can delay giving birth for the maximum possible amount of time. So there's like that. And we see that represented a lot in the kind of narratives that women are presented with. This is a counter narrative. And obviously, it's another extreme. But it also has appeal. There are things about it that look nice. You know, like it looks nice. And I think that the fact that it looks nice makes people, including me, um, you know, a little bit uncomfortable. But but I guess I just wonder if what people actually are craving is that or just something like much, much more minor tweaks that could like accomplish this with just a little bit more leisure time and a little bit less of a sort of culture of workaholic. It's complicated. And I guess I'm just also... Um, wondering about like whether some of like yes some of it is a kind of annoying aspect of a feminist critique but there's also like the valid feminist critique of if that's your life and your husband loses his job or divorces you then what then what do you do or dies or whatever and you're not financially where you had been then what that's not a sort of newfangled feminist critique that's a pretty old school feminist critique of this sort of lifestyle and i think Some of it is that too, no? Yeah, I go back and forth on the whether these women are being foolish in choosing to to live the way they are because what if the husband divorces you or what if he dies? The dies thing I have a little, I think like I give a little more credence to the what if he divorces you thing. I mean, you've got to put your faith somewhere. And I think putting it in, we're going to build a life together. Like I'm choosing this person and we're going to build a life together. And, you know, I'm going to entrust him to take care of me in in these ways or to take care of our family in these ways. Like, I don't know. It's it's possible that it's just because I've I've recently been reading like things from a certain perspective. I don't think it's wrong to decide to, to do marriage that way. 
it requires being not cynical about it in certain ways, but I think it maybe is okay to not be cynical about like what your life outcome is going to be. Like, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm talking about this in a very kind of like roundabout way, but what I'm trying to get at is at the end of the day, everybody who is living in any way at some point is like making a decision and being like, I'm just hoping that this works out. I'm just I'm just doing what I think like is is going to work out. I'm hoping that it works out. Like I'm taking a chance in certain ways. And people who are living the trad wife life are taking a particular kind of chance that is received a particular kind of way given the tone of the discourse right now and the feminist narratives about like men being untrustworthy and you know how you can't rely on anyone you have to like do for yourself. But um I don't know. I, th- I think it's okay. I think it's okay that they that they've decided that this is that this is the chance they're going to take. You know, because we all do take chances on something. You know, trying to build a life, and this is just what they decided to do. Sure. I mean, I, I guess maybe maybe to put it in a different way, I more just mean like that. There's a difference between the feminist critique that says these women are not girl bosses. How dare they? And the more pragmatic one that looks at what divorce rates are in society considers the fact that these women are influencers and says like, if you send this message, there is like, it's worth mentioning why historically there's been resistance to that path. And like, cause I, I agree with you that I don't think you can live an actual marriage with that sort of like, whatever, like the prenups and the like this, or like the, the thing that seems the most dystopian to me. Have you heard of us sort of like that marriage should be like, have term limits and that you like reassess after every certain number of years. Oh God. Yeah. I, that, that is so dystopian. That to me seems like the most horrific thing. And I've, whenever I hear that, I'm like, what planet? So like, I'm, I am with you to a point on this. Like, I think you have to, in your day-to-day life, like have some faith in the people around you and not just think any, but anything could happen at any moment. And otherwise, like, how could you, how could you do anything? <laughs> you know, you can't live like that, but I do think like there has to be at a certain point, some kind of like, what do you do when the baby's not a baby anymore? And I think a lot of women just figure this out and they don't have to have figured it out when the baby's a baby. But like a lot of women also just end up in a situation they didn't want to end up in because they just like, because of decisions that they made when they were actually very actively needing to look after a child. And it's not unheard of that then the man like finds another woman and the woman's left broke. So that's, that's just like, it does happen enough that I think it's worth like, but but the other thing, though, where I'm going to argue with myself, can I just argue with myself for like a second? Yeah. Give yourself hell. <laughs> I'm going to give myself hell. And then I, I have all, I'll think all of this and I'll think, well, easy for me to say, I like my work. I like what I'm doing for work, you know? And I think if you don't like what you're doing for work, it's probably a lot harder to motivate yourself to stay in a job you don't feel that excited about on the off chance that your husband becomes unemployed, disappeared dead all at once mm-hmm. you know it's funny because we've been talking about how the hubs the hubsons the husbands are sort of absent from the trad wife narrative they're sort of like props they're like nice looking props in this story about women are they actually nice nice looking often yes okay good I mean, now I'm now I'm now I'm more interested okay go on yeah no, nobody parades her like <laughs> hideous husband <laughs> um that'd be very funny but when I when I think about what makes these arrangements work and why I don't think that they're 
inherently foolish or inherently inferior is because ultimately what is being represented, even though you're only seeing it from one side, what's being represented is a partnership. And it's a partnership in which both parties agree that what these women are doing is important, that they are contributing something valuable to the unit, the organism that they've created in their merit. And, you know, that kind of shared worldview, shared sense of, of values, I think, you know, like like with any partnership, makes it a solid proposition. Obviously, you can get unlucky. Things can work out badly. But the men who are in these arrangements, you know, who support their wives financially and support them, you know, adopting the kind of master of the domestic realm role in their marriages, these are not guys who are inclined to go, like, looking to leave their wife for their secretary. It's just... Oh, I'm going to have to disagree with you there. I think you can't know that. I think things change. Maybe then they get a new secretary and she's really attractive. I mean, okay. Like, it goes back to the kind of cynical, like, you can never truly trust anybody. You can never... But, like, the men who enter these arrangements are making a statement at the outset about what they think is important and what they value. And obviously, there are times when it doesn't work out. Like, anybody can disappoint anybody. Anybody can change or, like, turn out to be a monster or whatever. But... Like, again, you know, you're you're hedging your bets that the person you're marrying believes what they say but they believe, they are who they say they are, that they are entering this arrangement because they too see value in it. Did you see this thing? There was some sort of, there were screenshots of a conversation somebody was having on some kind of dating app where the man was saying that he wanted like a trad wife. He wanted a stay-at-home wife to be the stay-at-home mother of his children, whatever, And he asks the woman what she wants, or the woman says what she wants. And what she wants is a man who will pay the bills and take care of her and the children. And he balks and he says, whoa, you're gold digger. Did you see this? Do you know what I'm talking about at all? Okay. No, I mean, that I like, I, I fully agree that this man sounds very confused. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not saying anything about like, is this all men? But I do think that there's a type of man who like, who wants, a wife who does all the traditional things, but also doesn't want, and this is a perfectly natural thing, also doesn't want the sole burden of paying for everything. I, I don't know that that's these men of the trad wives. I mean, I was I would guess that these men don't enter arrangements like this, like legally binding arrangements in which they are the sole breadwinner for a household full of a wife and children. And do you think that they want to do this when the children are older? I mean, I guess it's different for this ballerina farm because it seems like she's going to be having a new baby every year, like for the next hundred years. And that's interesting anatomically. But like, do you think that these husbands are signing up for that? Or do you think they see this as like a temporary thing? Because I feel like here's the here's the question. If you've built your brand around that you're a trad wife, you probably are reluctant to abandon that, even if your day to day life is like less geared towards childcare because your children are older. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Like, they're the women who are like living the trad wife lifestyle offline, you know, who are not making content out of it. And their lives are kind of opaque. It's hard to know what's going on with them because they're they're not TikTok content creators. The women who are the most popular trad wife content creators, often they don't even have children yet. Like, and so I think maybe because of that, they are able to cultivate trad wifery as like a really aesthetic thing. And they don't they don't have the expense that that can get in the way of the aesthetics also. 
I don't know, but I have a way to tie it all together, which is that it's making me think like the trad wife and the journalist are not necessarily such different realms. So as Sarah Peterson writes in her book, it's her husband, even though she's this published author, right? You know, she she wrote a real book with a real publisher and all of this. It's her husband's income that they're living on. And I think that that's not uncommon for women in media. And it doesn't mean that they have rich husbands. Sometimes it does. Often it does not. But I also think that's a kind of a strange way of looking at it, like household units, you know? <laughs> like, I think that there's this way that people talk about income where it's like, if you could not personally support your existing lifestyle on your income, you're too dependent and that's a problem. And I feel like that's maybe not the most practical way of seeing the world. But I think this supports my argument from before that we're all taking chances in our own ways. And is the woman who takes a prestige, low paying job in journalism who who doesn't know how to do anything else like has no other marketable skills apart from like writing listicles even though she's college educated and lives in a big city in an apartment her husband who works in finance or whatever is kind of the main breadwinner is she doing something foolish and short-sighted and is she failing to adequately like hedge her bets against against a, an uncertain future even though she's she's doing something that's much more of a like an accepted path. Yes, I think that's really important that like that this idea of what constitutes being sensible. And I think you may have just uh, hit the nail on the head about why this type of woman causes so much angst in that particular part of society. And it is that like <laughs> how self-supporting are, you know, women journalists or male journalists for that matter, especially journalists in any kind of culture lifestyle realm, you know, it's extremely precarious, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to overstate this because I do think there is like, it's a bit easier to pivot to like PR or whatever from journalism than from like you're raising goats or whatever. But I do think there's something to this. Oh, but can I tell you why the BB though? The reason for the BB? Because we're going to have a picture of this in the show notes, the reason for the title. Okay. So I was reading Kat's article and I was really enjoying it, you know, scrolling down and I, I read this part. The head's out, says a voice from off camera, and the blonde woman shudders with the effort of her final push. Blood blooms from between her legs and a wail fills the room. The sound of a newborn <laughs> infant releasing its first breath. And I'm scrolling down and then there's an ad and it's a video of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu speaking and I see his head. And I see the heads out. I see Netanyahu's head. And I somehow, I assume that it's his head. And I just start having like my mind wanders at such that like I'm imagining that like the blonde influencer lady has like birthed um, Netanyahu. And obviously I immediately got to that part of the article, did a screenshot and sent it to Kat because that's what we're like. Of course, of course. And then I, I said, this is how a horror movie starts. Rosemary's baby. And then Cat yeah, so <laughs> came up with the best title. I don't think we we're ever going to have as good a show title as that. So, Probably but not. you had to know you had to know why it has that title because otherwise you would have no idea. And uh, you know, it's funny um, if we're calling these women handmaidens of the Christian nationalist agenda. What would it mean if one of them actually gave birth to Benjamin Netanyahu? And would they be personally responsible for everything happening in the Middle East? Yes. Uh, has this been feminine chaos? <laughs> 
Has it ever. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye. Bye.